Hi, this is Nicoine Toussaint from France, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So where, where, where am I talking to you from? So you're, you're catching me in Pau, France. Pau is uh, at the south uh, bottom of uh, the, the country by the Spanish border and by the Pyrenees, the mountains. Wow, that's a beautiful area. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. I mean, people find it a little boring if you're not into nature and mountains and stuff. And some cities have a, uh, bigger cities like Bordeaux or Toulouse may have a little more excitement, but I like it. Um, how long have you lived there? I I came here the first time for the university when I was 18, and then I've been going back and forth. But my friends, as an adult, most of my friends are like around Po and my musicians too, and so so I it was easy also to buy. So I I bought a place here. Wow, um, I'm gonna ask you how you got into music. Okay, I know you play um, classical music and you played the piano when you were young. Correct. Right. Yeah, exactly. Today I, I play harmonica and I sing. And this is how I got my name, Nico Toussaint. But uh, my father was a journalist and also a, a musician. Um, as many people in the 70s, he went back to his roots uh, as a French person from the southwest of France or from the southeast of France, actually, for, for his case. And he went back to the music from uh, his ancestors. And also, as he was going back to his own roots, he went back to American uh, music. So it was, a, you know, the folk revival was in the United States, as it was also very strong in Europe. And my father, along with some uh, uh, American musicians he had met in Paris, was uh, exposed to the folk mu uh, music from the U.S., but by getting interested in the folk music from the U.S. He got interested in the folk music from his own country. And so along just before I was born, my parents recorded a few albums, a few vinyls, like um, um, 33, you yeah, know, yeah, LPs, yeah. and um, where they were playing uh, um, traditional French music. So my father was a, uh, was a guitar player. He was also playing accordion. He was playing violin. My mother would sing. My sisters would also sing. They would play the dulcimer. They would play the, 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 the spoons. And um, so all that background was there before I, before I was born. And um, when I came in 73, this was at the very end of the, the movement, basically, because my mother got tired of all the surrounding of the music at the time and the drugs and everything. And she thought it was not healthy for the family. So she kicked everyone out of the house. And uh, she kept her family very close. And so I grew up with with a piano in the house. And my father was also a piano player. His mother was a, a, a major um, a, a piano player majoring from a conservatory in Toulon, France. And she was a piano teacher. Wow. And so all my sisters grew up with piano lessons in the morning before going to school. But once again, uh, it was not my case because I came after that. My grandmother was already like quite old when I when I was born and so I didn't benefit or I didn't suffer <laughs> from her, her teaching <laughs> and uh, and it's only later that my mother 
said, okay, you're going to take piano lessons because it's like, it's the family thing. So my father was not too much of a, a teacher, so he didn't teach me, but I, I went on and got some lessons for about three years and, um, it didn't suit me well. It didn't work for me. The, the classical, um, ex, ex, um, uh, the demanding, you know, how demanding it can be. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14, there's only so much you want to give to, uh, to the work. And so after a while I got tired of it, my mother got tired of, uh, pushing me to practice. And so we stopped <laughs> and, and everybody was happy. <laughs> and, um, can, can I ask you, um, did you, when your dad, he was a journalist, did he quit his job to become a music musician or was music part-time for him? No, the thing is, uh, he never stopped, uh, working as a journalist because music never paid anything. And this is also why my mother was really tired of the whole music situation. Even though they, they went, they, back in the days, they had major reviews in a, a bunch of uh, newspapers, national newspapers. They went on radio shows and stuff, but it didn't really turn into money. So, so after a while, it was, it was more an investment from my father than, than something that would bring home money. So, so he, he, he never quitted his job, and also he, he liked it very much. I think he liked it to be able to have one foot in each world. Right. Well, which makes sense. Yeah. And then somehow you discovered the blues. So, yes, my, as I told you before, my father was a, a big fan of uh, American traditional music. So it, it would go from country music to jazz. My father was born in 31. So he grew up with the jazz, you know, and um, he saw Big Bill Bronze in France in 1951. Wow. Um, but that was, he wouldn't call that blues. That would be, a, you know, one, one uh, example, I mean, of one... Uh, one jazz player mm. they wouldn't call that blues at the time um so but he grew up with all that background and so there was a lot of uh, vinyls at home they would go from all the chopin mozart all the classical music to uh, to you know charlie daniels or <laughs> you know and also my father was a big big fan of the cajun music which i think he under he loved so much because he didn't speak English, so for him, meeting the American uh, culture through a the the media of a music that would have French-based lyrics, right, was for him a, a good way to enter to to a, a starting point for the culture, and he really got into the Balfa Brothers and and uh, of course Zachary Richard and um, also the music from the French part of Canada um, and. Um, so he, he also was a performer of those, those genres of music when he was in his 20s living in Paris to make a living. He would play in restaurants and stuff. So he, uh, he had all that background in, in vinyls. And so one day a friend of us picked an LP out of the collection and he said, oh, you also like that? And he left the record there. And the record was Muddy Waters, Manish Boy. And uh, I was 15 and I look at I looked at the, the the vinyl and I went in my room and I put it on, and the first song was uh, "Manish Boy" and it it was on TV at the time because they would use it for Levi's advertisement, <laughs> and um, and for me it it matches immediately immediately I, I I went like oh but that's the music from Levi's you know, and uh, and that 
I got hooked from that point on. Wow. So, so is this is this the Hard Again album? Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And then hooked me on what? So being hooked means uh, listening to this music over and over, right? And trying to look for more. So um, you must have understood that I have um, other sisters, and they're older than me, and um, so much older than they had boyfriends when I was uh, just a teenager. And so the one one boyfriend was really into music. He was really into uh, Rory Gallagher. Um, you know, um, Mark Knopfler, mm -hmm. uh, things with guitar. And so he would come home and he would say, uh, I, I remember he brought back the Johnny Hooker, um, the Healer album. And he said, look, listen to that. And he gave me some records. And uh, I started playing the records he would give me. And then he would come back and he'd say, what do you have for me to listen to? And I said, I have nothing, man. I'm 15. <laughs> what do you think I have? So... But then he would tease me like that. And after a while, I started to use my the, the money I had saved. I would go in, in the local record store and I would try to buy something that I that would be a counter exchange for him that would be valuable. So uh, at first, anything that looked at like electric guitar going on, <laughs> I would buy. <laughs> and um, but after a while, I realized that if that they actually had a blues section and I could find Muddy Waters, I could find other records, but also behind the record of Muddy Waters, I could see the name of James Cotton, Otis Spann, um, or Pinto Perkins in that case, uh, um, Johnny Winter. And so I went on and I bought some of those musicians' records, if I could find them, or sometimes with tapes. And then after a while, I started to understand what music I really liked. And, um, and I went on fishing for the music I wanted to hear not so much to 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 play the game with my with my in-law but but more to uh, to to nourish my my own uh, desire and then the movie uh, Crossroad came along right. you know Crossroad yeah so that was a major eye opener for me because well first of all I could see things that I I kind of was in a way imagining imagining in my head but all of a sudden it was not a documentary; it was Hollywood. Yeah. But I was I was in a black bar with Frank Frost, and and uh, and all of a sudden it, it it started nourishing my imagination, and um, and so I went on. I bought the record. I bought more of Rykuder. My father had some Rykuder. He had Vigilante Man. He had a lot of stuff. So all of that, you know, gathered. In, in in my on my CD player and on my LP player. What do you think it was about the blues that that drew you in? Um, obviously not the lyrics because at the time I couldn't understand, um, and not the story of those musicians because very little was my knowledge or my capacity to access it. Right. But probably the feeling of um, a pure sensation of freedom in the music that was played specifically in the record hard again where you can hear all those musicians jamming together mm -hmm. the songs are six minutes long they take solos one after another and it's extremely live although it's a studio recording there's no crowd but you can feel that they're it's really artisan made it's really handmade 
And uh, compared to, for example, Dire Strait, which I was listening at the same time, I could hear something that was much more polished. On another hand, uh, Hard Again was much more um, raw. And, but, and I think that's what I really loved. Also, I just got in love with um, the feel that you, you can, you can, you can, uh, you, that can resonate in you when you listen to the slide guitar. Mm -hmm. And um, Ray Cooter, his slide, the way he gets, he slides into the, the notes, that really affected me. I remember going to see uh, uh, Luther Allison and he would take uh, the slide and I would cry. I would cry watching him playing the slide guitar. So I think I've been truly um, um, uh, um, transformed or maybe revealed that myself when I first heard the blues. Maybe it had to uh, have a certain echo in me for some reason. I don't know. So um, I know that there is a bunch of blues venues in, in Paris, and I know that there are some great blues um, festivals in in France, I don't know how how much blues was available to you when you were growing up. Were you able to see? You said you saw Luther Allison, but at a young age when you were getting into it, did you have the opportunity to see any of these blues musicians? Not at the age of fifteen, um, because we were not too much aware of what thing of one thing that was coming through my town every year. But it's only when I was 18 that I started to go see it. That was the Ch Chicago Blues Festival. And so what they call the Chicago Blues Festival in Europe is a French promoter puts together a lineup with three uh, headliners, one backing band, but three leaders. Right. And they go on the road. They go on the road from uh, France, uh, Belgium, uh, Switzerland, whatever. They, they have maybe three or four weeks of uh, tours and they go in all the major cities in the in each country especially in france because it all started from the jazz at club de france who instigated the very first uh tours of those musicians so um the first act that i saw must have been in uh, 89 or in 90 and it was and i will always remember it i didn't play harmonica at the time but the, the act i saw was jimmy johnson uh, Johnny B. Moore and Bartha Smith. Wow. And they were they were amazing, the three of them. And of course, you know, when you know nothing, the little thing you'll see will impress you very much. And I remember they came back for the, the encore, the three of them, and um and uh, Jimmy Johnson he broke a string. And so he, he 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 went, he put his guitar down, but he came back with a harmonica and that just blew me away. I was <laughs> like, man, this is those these musicians they're never gonna stop they they break a string they don't care they pull out a harmonica and the music goes on that i was amazed i was truly amazed and, and jimmy johnson is one of my favorites and what a what an amazing voice he has totally wow that's great so when you saw that and i know that you're still young and impressionable but what did that mean to you when you actually saw the real thing because it, it doesn't get more real than Bizer and Jimmy Johnson. Well, you know, for me, it was still something you see um, in a theater. Uh, we would, we, you know, it would it would come around every uh, December, and so it would be like the circus or like Santa Claus. So it's it was very located in time and in a place 
the theater, you would buy your ticket, you would dress well, you go, you would go, you know. So it's only later that I've, I really understood the full dimension when I was in the US and I was and I started to go to the, the, the blues clubs there. Um, what I was able to see in a um, in a theater was only giving me the the desire to listen more to this music, to go home and just immerse myself more and more and more in in this music. And uh, at that time, I I I was not I couldn't suspect that I was gonna be able to uh, really live it from from the inside and actually be a part of it later on. But um, to go back to the records. Uh, those three years between the age of 15 and the age of 18 um, where I first started to listen to blues and the age of 18 where I picked, uh, I started harmonica. For the three years, I, I listened a lot to uh, records, but not only I listened, but I started to sing over the records. And it may seem, you know, funny or whatever. Um, it, it, it was for me the, the moment where I learned um, how to sing in tune, where I learned the blues format, like the 12 bars. I learned the bass lines, and, I, and so I had a baseball bath. You'll laugh at this. <laughs> I had a baseball bath, and so I would take my baseball bath, and I would stand right by the angle of a, uh, a wardrobe that I had, and I would pretend this was my vocal mic, and I was facing, I don't know, a, a stadium. <laughs> And I would, I would, I would sing over the the record. So I would mimic the, for example, Ray Cooter, and so I th I, I developed a lot of uh, of my vocabulary because I thought the guitar looks to me like it's a, a piano. It's gonna be a it's gonna be complicated to learn the guitar because it's just like the piano. But maybe someday I I. I'll, I'll have the patience to do it. So meanwhile, I'm just going to learn the vocabulary. So I learned all the things I wanted to say just vocally. And I thought once I know how to say it vocally, I will be able to reproduce it on the guitar. It'll be easy because I will already have made up my mind on all the things I want to say. So I, I then afterwards, you know, I went on with B.B. King or James Cotton, Sonny Boy and Buddy Guy and all these musicians. And I would I would try to sang you know over their their parts just to copy their parts and i learned a lot of my blues from singing over the records but you didn't go the guitar route you went the harmonica route how did that happen it happened because um one of my sister um met an australian guy who was on vacation they ended up uh, marrying he was a guitar he, he was a guitar player on the side and he could play a little blues and he said why don't you why don't you pick up the harmonica and we uh, we can have a duo and i said okay well, you know i why not the harmonica i i know sonny boy i love him i know gino wells i have records james cotton i'm a big fan so sure the harmonica makes sense and so we said that but one day we uh we went to see a show and this guy came out of nowhere and he uh he, he joined the band and he blowed the harmonica like a like a monster, and so my 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 brother-in-law he said go talk to him. <laughs> so I went to talk to him and I said, would you give classes? He says, yeah. And the guy happened to live less than a mile away from my house, so it it made everything easy. And I started so I bought my first harmonica, 
I showed up and he taught me from zero from from the very beginning and the guy was a very 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 fine player and so he uh, he got me into uh, on the right tracks with the right way to uh, uh, the right uh, way to, um, to 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 practice I, I suppose and the right sounds to aim for when when practicing and after maybe a year or a year and a half I I I stopped the lessons and I went on by myself keeping on you know trying to emulate the records that I that I had. So at what point, and I don't know if it's then or much later, that you thought maybe you could become a musician? So that's another thing. I, I, I really was in love with the music. And after a while, I got in love with the guys. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know that some uh, encyclopedies or books did exist at the time. Um, so I... The only thing I could know about them was from the on the back of the the records, you know, some uh, notes or stuff. Right. So before wanting to become a musician, I I thought I was going to learn the harmonica to be able to approach these musicians and interview them and be more be more effective at, at uh, with my interviews because I would know the music better and also be more um, be more uh, respected in a way or be more. Um, um, uh, or less of a less of a troublemaker as coming with my questions. If I can show them that I I love the music so much that I can play it, and so from that point on we can talk about it. So my my first idea was to learn the instrument as a um, as a as a ticket to be able to meet and get closer to these musicians and eventually uh, um, interview them or work in journalism uh, uh, around it. Some something around it i wasn't seeing myself as a performer really because I, I i just wonder you know growing up in france what if, if being a, a blues musician on having that dream would have been an easy reality to achieve it became an easy reali reality to achieve uh to my own surprise but at first um it was not my goal, as I say, yeah. but I, I must tell you that, um, Marco, that my uh, uncle is American, is from Minneapolis, and I have my middle name Wayne right. out of his name. Okay. So, so uh, when I was nineteen, Wayne uh, invited me over, and um, for one month in Minneapolis in September. And I signed up for uh, English classes at the university for foreigners. And um, so I had my schedule during the, the week filled up with classes. But on weekends, they had a, a club in Minneapolis called the Blue Saloon. I don't know if you heard of it. No. But it's, uh, it's, it was one of the national clubs and all the bands that would, that would go on, on the road nationally would stop at the Blue Saloon. And at the time... Mickey Mulvihill was the the owner of the Blue Saloon. Do you know uh, yes. about Mickey? Yeah, I do know Mickey. She was on the show. Okay, well, yeah. so Mickey used to run the Blue Saloon back in back uh, in uh, ninety one, ninety two, ninety three, ninety and um, and so I opened the the newspaper when I was uh, in town, and I and I see that the very first weekend I I was I just had arrived that same weekend. Gary Primich was playing at the Blues Saloon, hmm. so so um, 
I asked my 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 uncle. I asked Wayne to get me there. Of course, I was uh, 19 years old, so I was not supposed to come in, but you know, I was able to to go in because we. Uh, we 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 worked a little bit on my ID and so it worked <laughs> it 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 played the trick and so here I was uh enjoying Gary Primich in a in a club and uh you know I got invited to dance and I started dancing it, then then something was really happening the music was there the player was there the sound was there all the atmosphere around it that was my uh, that was a big day for me and s that same day i went out to the bar and i asked for a, a coke and a, a i don't know a beer or something and so the woman goes like ah oh, but what's your accent where are you from so i said i'm from france she says oh I, uh, yeah i know luther allison from france i work with him and i said well i i'm I know Luther Allison because I saw him this this summer. Oh, wonderful! So we shake hands and stuff, and that started being my very good friendship with Mickey, that helped me working at the Blue Saloon uh, down the road as a waiter too, and and that was the beginning of a lot of stuff that happened at the at the bar for me. Wow, I know you also spent some time in Chicago, but yes, what what did coming to the states and experiencing blues? whether it be in Minneapolis or in Chicago, mean to you? Well, all of a sudden, you know, you're in the movie. <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're not in the spectator seat. All of a sudden, you're in the story. And, um, you know, I'm, when I'm there, I'm, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do anything. Just that I just sit at the bar and I just try to grasp anything that, everything that i can see people reaction their movements their I'm, i don't know this is my buffet it's a, it's a it's an open buffet for me and i eat as as much as possible <laughs> the music my eyes everything my the smell everything everything and uh and um and it makes sense all of a sudden you understand the thing is we when in france we uh we try to practice this music we um we look at the record if the record if there's a mistake on the record we will reproduce the mistake because it's it's on the record so we're playing it like the record right. you know and of, after a while you realize that this music is as as the musicians are very often on the survival mode when they play it and uh, um they don't have um much time at the studio they don't have much time in life anyway because because it's it's funny it's it's a saying but it's true uh time is money so it, they're not going to spend too much uh time practicing if they can be doing a um, um, an, a job that's going to pay them a few dollars so so everything is converted in being efficient and if there is a mistake we just go with the you know go with the flow i remember being in the studio with Killeray you know Killeray Allison the drummer no from Killer Ray was uh, the drummer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of yeah, no, I do actually know. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, the drummer of, uh, of Coco Taylor and mm -hmm. Buddy Guy and uh, a mo monster drummer. But when I met Killer Ray in Chicago, he had uh, he had quit playing the drums and he was playing the guitar. And um, we um, we we met. We became very good friends. And I invited him for some uh, tours here in France. And we did some tours together. And one day we went to a studio with my band. And uh, I took him to the studio, and he um, we recorded live, and 
he starts a song and the drummer stops the song because um, he, he missed something. And, and Killer opened his eyes and he, he goes, why did you stop the song? So the guy goes, no, but I, you know, I missed something. And so I wanted to, you know, I want to do it right. Killer looked at him with killer eyes and he said, you don't, you don't stop the song. You don't stop the song. And, I, and for me, it shows a lot. It, it's, it shows that there, what we will call a mistake is just part of the, the, the game, part of the playing part of trying to you know be 100% of in the moment it's recorded live all together we've never practiced the song he just cued us a couple of information and then here we go boom we we're playing and there's no there's no second chance you don't have a second chance you just got to be right at the right place boom and it shows how good those musicians were when you think about it because very often the playing is just totally amazing the, the the taste they have when they play it's it's just amazing but there's no there's no especially in the old recordings there there was no um overdubbing no nothing they were they were just doing it raw right on the spot and that makes this music so fresh and strong so fresh so i wonder at what point did you think this is what you wanted to do and and also when you when you decided that you wanted to become a musician I know you went to university, so you always had a, a backup plan. And I don't know if, it, if you consider it that. But, but when, when did you decide that you wanted to pursue music? And, and when you did, can you tell me what that looked like to you? Like, was it to come to the States or was it to make it in, in Europe? Like, what, how did you envision your career? Um. So I had a deal with my parents. Um, That was was was, the other thing I wanted to ask you. (laughs) Obviously, your mom had some opinions about musicians. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Musicians were banned from the house. So when I came at the age of 18 and I said, Mother, I want to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to learn harmonica. I remember she looked at me and and she goes, okay, but you're going to pay for your own classes. (laughs) So, so I said, okay, no, not the problem. And so I went on an iPad for my own classes. And, uh, and then I went to the university. And um, uh, my parents at the time, you know, it's not so much in the French culture, especially 30 years ago, that students would uh, be um, working to pay for their own scholars or expenses uh, at the university and stuff very often um you get a help from the state um and your parents support you so i was no different from the rest of my fellow friends uh, at the time my parents would pay for my apartment and they would basically uh support my studies and and so which was which also means that i was depending on their money and so i had a deal with my mother is I could play harmonica as much as I wanted since I would do good at the university. So, um, so as I, um, so I, I would be studying, um, and then I didn't have any TV set. I only had my stereo system. So my break from studying would be picking up my harmonica or playing my tapes and, 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 and playing over the music and, you know, and music was my break. So, um, I went on like this 
But after a while, I started um, meeting some musicians out in the city in Po, actually, where where I was at the university, and um, I started gigging and and I started having a, um, a some uh, some some little shows that would pay me a little. So my mother hated the the idea that that I was uh, pursuing the music and you know making it a little even more um, professional, but she liked it, the fact that. For once, it was bringing some money. So, <laughs> so as as long as it's not that my mother was um, um, a greedy or nothing, but for her, music was always a lousy game. And for once, it could maybe be a little different. And so, after a couple of years, um, me and my father we uh, decided to uh, pr to practice and to put on together just as a duo, a little show. And we sold that little show to a couple of places in the city. And that um, led into my father buying uh, a piano, a portable piano, so we could move on to the different gigs with, um, with it. So um, I really got helped in the process of starting to play because my father was the guy who's, who's, who, who would be doing the booking and he was good in talking. And so soon we, we uh, ended up uh, having uh, regular gigs. And I remember one summer where we had 45 gigs over 60 days, July and August, 45 shows. That was a lot. So we would play in campings, we would play in bars, we would play for cities, activities, you know, uh, little resorts. Um, so, and, and a festival here and there. And remember back in the days we didn't have CDs to right, promote. Right. I'm talking 93, 94. So we would uh, have just cut a tape, demo tape at home, and we would duplicate that tape and send it by, by post mail to, to people. And my father would do the job afterwards on the phone. So we, uh, we, I, I, it was easy for me to, to play as I, said earlier because my first gig i got um i got connected with a wonderful guitar player who i still play with today michel foison is my friend we went to uh the ibc together in in uh in 2014 and we ended up in the, in the finals as a duo and he was the first man i was connected to to for a paid gig when I never rehearsed <laughs> because he, he knew all the material he, he, sang, he sung and the guy who uh, hooked me up with him was a bartender that had booked him and he said next Wednesday I'm on a you know you, you'll be playing with a harmonica player and so I, that was me I showed up Michel was like okay all right you can, you know you, you know little Walter you know big Walter I said yes and so we went on and we played and and here I was making my first money like that so Turning into uh, becoming a professional musician has not been that hard to get because it, I don't know, it, it went on pretty easy for me. Wow. So when, when you decide to pursue that, um, did it, how did, did it mean just you, France or do you, did you, was it easy to get to other parts of Europe? So, um, so there was still there was still a gap between doing some uh, b bars and campings around uh, based on a tape that we had cut at home and actually turning tr truly professional, and um, that gap was uh, was uh, was covered 
uh, within about four years um, because I went to uh, Minneapolis for one year as a uh, French teaching assistant at Northfield University, um, which is uh, actually, I'm sorry, it's Carlton College in Northfield, which is south of, uh, south of Minneapolis. And this is when I met R.J. Michaud. This is when I met uh, Jeremy Johnson, uh, different musicians mm -hmm. and um, I, that I hooked up with, that I knew some of them I knew from uh, my previous trips in, uh, in Minneapolis. And um, I recorded my very first CD that I produced myself in 97. And um, with um, Leonard Shapiro from uh, Minneapolis, different musicians. And... I came back to I came back to France for the summer with my CD in hand, and um, and uh, I had some friends who helped me putting a tour together, and I came back with the drummer and the guitar player from Minneapolis, and we went on a tour, uh, a local tour again, uh, you know, in the southwest, many places, small places, and uh, but that helped me to get a um, record deal for distribution for this first CD, and then a record deal for uh, with a, a record label called Dixie Frog. I don't know if you're yep. familiar with Dixie Frog. I am. But, okay, so f Dixie Frog is, um, for 25 years, they've been the one of the very first European blues label and the very first blues label in France. They license music from Popa Chubby, Eric Bibb, um, Guy Davis, um, I don't know, um, you know, um, a lot of people, Tommy Castro is on Dixie Frog, a lot of people are on Dixie Frog. And so Dixie Frog said, okay, if you have a new CD out, we'll be interested in signing it and releasing it. And so in 98, I, I, uh, I recorded a, a second album in Minneapolis uh, with uh, musicians from the R. Jimmy Show's band. And um, this CD came out and it because of Dixie Frog, I got distributed uh, in Europe. And so people in uh, Belgium, people in Germany heard of me, um, not physically, but they heard thanks to the record that ended up in their hands. And so I started getting calls, and this is the year that I really became professional, 98. So how important, I know you played in the States, and I, I saw you in Mont-Tremblant, number of years ago but how important was coming to north america or was that even important at all for your career oh for me for me um see my i i've never looked at my career um the way you you actually put it into words um because your previous question was what what was your career career plan i didn't have and i still don't have basically it's it's kind of strange but um coming to north america and being able to listen to blues was uh more important than making a living out of playing blues right um because i was such a blues lover so for me the importance was that i wanted to be as close as i could to uh, you know the all these musicians and the feel the, the the right one i'm not saying any sort of blues because there's a lot of trash out there too but i knew what i wanted to hear and it's it became a almost like a drug and i just needed my fix every 
you know, on a regular basis. So coming to North America since I, I, I had my first uh, encounter with Gary Primich at the end of um, 19, every year after that, I went to the U.S. every year. And I was able to, uh, to, to get a position as a French teaching assistant. Why? To, to, be, to, to get the chance to be there, be in the U.S., be close to more clubs, be uh, exposed to more musicians, be able to jam more. And recording an album was only for me um, a, 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 little, a little way for me to say that I did participate to the thing. But I'm still a, I'm still a fan before being a, um, an artist. <laughs> so you still feel that way? Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so but you became like a full-time musician and, and pursued this. Um, but you also teach. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the thing is, after um, after uh, five years of university, uh, I ended up with a master in history, and I started um, because as a musician, you know, you only most of your time you're going to be, uh, especially in France. I know in the U.S. it's it can be different, but in in France you work on weekends, and so what do you do the rest of the week? So I had plenty of time and I'm not just going to work on booking my name and, and, you know, there's only so much you can do, but then, then, you know, people still have to uh, make up their mind. They're going to call you or they're going to call someone else. So I'm not going to wait in front of the phone or my, on my computer for someone to say, Hey, I want you to come. So I decided I was, I was going to, I had to do something else. Uh, so because because if not, it's just a waste of time. <laughs> so I, so I, I was able to uh, move on and teach uh, history for American students here at the University of Poe. And uh, I did this until I couldn't manage it anymore with my schedule. And I remember um, at one point, I, I just had to make a, 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 a decision. Am I going to be able to, to say yes to this tour that's ha that's that you know that's happening in the middle of the school year or i have to refuse the the, the tour because i i i put uh, front front row the teaching and so i i let the teaching go for the music because it was very exciting mm -hmm. playing was extremely exciting meeting up new people was very exciting and i felt like every single gig could make a difference in my life whereas uh, it's not the case when you teach <laughs> So I could feel like every single gig, I could meet someone else. I could meet someone that would take me a, a step higher. And in, in the process of um, living the life and living the dream and, you know, and having fun doing it, this is extremely exciting. Who am I going to meet? Who, who, what, what new musician am I going to be um, jamming with that maybe I want to record with or, you know, so that, and, and also I feel like I was becoming my own little entrepreneur. I was selling my CDs. I was, you know, every uh, energy, every inch of energy I would put in my project would actually turn into something good for me versus when you teach, there's a lot you need to put on. And then it's the little, there's a sort of routine going on when you teach. So, so you don't see the benefit immediately versus with the music. You can see the benefits at, at the end of each song. You see, you, you see the impact you have on your crowd. So, so I, I, I gave up the teaching. And then 
um, I went for this life for 20 years, but then um, I went back to the university because I was again tired of uh, just being a musician. And I and and I I was I was a little disappointed at myself to have gone so far in you know you know at the university to forget everything, not to not to use that language that I had that the capacity to write and to uh, so I went back to uh, the university and I did a second master in teaching French to foreigners and uh, for the last uh, five years for the past five years I have been a full time teacher in an international school. So that's very challenging because it's a different uh, sort of uh, expectations from your students. And, um, and it's also a different lifestyle. It's a diff waking up every, every morning at six or at 5.30, depending on if I have some work to do. And so it's, it's a very demanding work. So, but, and, and I keep uh, my schedule busy on weekends with my band. So it's, it's, all, it's all good. Um, was it a difficult decision to go back to school? Or not? I mean, like what, other than kind of being disappointed about not using what you had learned, um, how did you make that decision to go back to school? I made it, I'll be honest with you, Marco, I made it for, um, um, for uh, family reasons. Um, I have a daughter that lives half of her life in the United States and half of her life here in France with me and I share the custody with her mother. And um, I was, the custody we share is a very strange one. It's uh, it's my daughter lives two years with me and then she goes for two years with her mother and then two years, two years. And so it was my, it was gonna come my time to have my two years. And I, I was uh, not living in an area where I had family anymore. And I thought I need to be able to be a full-time father full-time at home not depending on music so i went back to the university the second time also to be ready for my daughter when she was going to come and live with me so i wouldn't i wouldn't have to be on the road to uh to bring bread to the table uh, i would have another source of income and um and so i i did all that over three years, I planned. That's that's one thing I planned. I don't plan too much of my <laughs> professional musical career, but that I planned. Right. And so, I I went back to the university and I'd done three years. The third year, I went, I exiled myself and to French Guiana, which is uh, in Brazil. I mean, next to Brazil in Latin America, which but it's a French colony. And I went to teach history uh, for one year there in, um, in a very tough environment. And um, I came back and I, with my, I had a thesis to write about that experience also. And I converted that thesis into my diploma. And after that, my daughter arrived. I had my diploma. I looked for a job, found a job, and everything fell into places. Wow. What did that, what did that experience of teaching in Brazil give you um the will to go back because sometimes you uh you um you 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 realize that you're you're needed or you're you you can make a difference some places more than others and you may be the same teacher the places your you'll your your voice or or your presence will have a different echo than in other places and over there they're the situation is bad in terms of uh, education, in terms of uh, socialization, 
many, many, many uh, social problems. And, um, uh, and so, and it's, it, 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 it's funny because again, it's a, it's a French colony back from the 18th century. So it used to be a, like Louisiana, like Haiti, like all these places, like the Caribbeans. Yeah. We, we used to, uh, we used to uh, grow uh, sugar canes there. And so the majority of the people that are living there are black. And if they're black, they're they're from uh, they're they're all um, slave uh, ancestors. I mean uh, descendants. Right. So for someone who uh, sings the blues, it's it, it, that was quite an experience for me to uh, to be in a in a classroom, the only white man there. And uh, although we would all speak French because they're French mm -hmm. citizens, but France is very far away from from their reality. So I just spent one year there and I came back and now I'm it's been five years that I've that I'm here in, in Po. Um but I, I wanna go back because I think I can I can be helpful. Um it's I know it's a personal matter, so I don't want to delve into it, but that's a very very unusual arrangement to have your daughter come to you for two years and then two years away and two years back. Yeah, I think it's uh it's it was um it was a smart choice and we've been able to manage it good as parents and my daughter good as a as a person too, I think. And she she uh, enjoys actually that rhythm and that that movement and um and 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 what an amazing experience for her to see both sides of, you know, to live in France and to live in the states. Right and um, exactly, but she she has lived also in Ecuador, so she uh, and she is fluent in the three languages. So yeah, it's, that's uh, that's something very different from my own childhood. If I compare our two childhoods, sometimes I look at her and I'm thinking she uh, she has seen much more of the world than me when I was her age. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so then three yeah. years ago you decided, or maybe it was longer, that you would do. While you were teaching, you thought, I want to do an album doing, uh, I guess, a tribute to James Cotton. Right, it's true. Um, and thank you for mentioning it. Um, when I went to Guyana, uh, I kind of draw a line on my musical career. And I thought, um, I when I know that I leave. And I, I know that I, I, I'm canceling gigs. And this might be a point of no return for me in the business. So... I just leave and whatever happens from now on, whatever happens, happens. And as I was there in, uh, <clears throat> in Guyana and I was uh, <clears throat> not uh, performing at all. I didn't play one, sh one single show in the, 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 the year that I was there. Okay, so did you miss I, playing at all? Yes. Okay. Yes. I miss playing and I, and I gave classes. Uh, I, actually, I started teaching harmonica when I was in Guyana uh, online with a, for somebody in in England and someone else that I that uh, I that was in France and then someone else who saw me posting some videos uh, on YouTube that I had recorded in Guyana and so he he contacted me and he said man you're in Guyana and I'm I'm also there in Guyana can we meet and I, I want you to give me classes so I started you know developing that activity of being a teacher which I had never considered uh, for harmonica and. Um, and and it it was good because it kept me uh, uh with a certain uh, uh, 
you know, uh, uh, amount of uh, expectations for myself as a, as a, as a harmonica player in order to be able to, uh, to submit good material to my students. Right. So, and I recorded some, uh, yeah, posted, I recorded some, um, YouTube, uh, YouTube, um, demos and stuff. Uh, one about warmer jammer that I recorded in Guyana and stuff anyway. So yes, uh, I missed playing and I thought, okay, you know, if I, what was, what would be the, the project I would like to de to defend or to develop uh, if, if it was not nothing, uh, related to, uh, uh, anything practical, like, you know, when you're a duo, it's easy to tour when you're four, that's perfect. You, you have a one, one van and four seats and that's, that's wonderful. You, you, but then when you start being five, it's a little more complicated also for the lodging, everything. So I thought, now I'm not I'm not going to look at my band as with, on on that angle, but what sort of what sort of music would I like to record? And I thought if there's one thing I would like to do, that's James Cotton uh, live in Chicago album with the the three three piece horn section and the five piece band, the rhythm band, and uh, and I I started to uh, think about this project and uh, dig a little more into it and into myself to know if I really wanted to do it. And I started uh, organizing, conceptualizing the idea from Guyana. And so when I came back, um, I already had the musicians ready to follow me on the project and we went on and it, and then the idea was to go on and, and start playing and see what it looks like or what it sounds like. And then we started going into the studio recording and then a month later, uh, or maybe, yeah, a month later, uh, James Cotton passed away. And so the, 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 the complete idea of uh, doing a tribute to James Cotton as he was alive, my goal was when, I, when we decided we were going to do a, a record with uh, the music, with the material, I wanted James Cotton to, to hear it. Mm. Because for me, that was the ultimate tribute. You you do it as he's alive, and you're presenting it to him, saying, "Look, master, what do you think?" You know, and then he passed away, and so the concept of the tribute, be, you know, came almost more accurate. But it was not. I didn't want that to to come in with this timing. I I didn't want to do a tribute, you know, because he had passed away. I wanted to to be a tribute band to him as he was alive, uh, even having him as a guest in our band and, you know, playing his material with him, that would have been a, a trip, mm -hmm. but it just happened differently. Well, I always loved your version of Midnight Creeper. I always remember Thank that. You. So um, it seems appropriate that you would do a tribute to James Cotton. Yeah. I mean, uh, out of uh, all the harmonica players and, you know, how many you can find that are incredibly good mm -hmm. but james cotton is the one james cotton is the one i was listening today to um the recording of uh big mama thornton along with the muddy waters band and that's james cotton on the harmonica and i don't know what he does to me but that's for me that's the ultimate uh, achievement in harmonica playing that's the sound the placing the phrasing the ideas everything uh, the timing, that's for, that's the best thing for me, the best. Oh, I, I, I understand why. Um, so so after you release that album, you, you're still teaching. Um, is there a plan? Once again, the plan. But <laughs> like at this point, are you a teacher or are you a musician or are you both? I'm both, Marco. I'm both. Because as a musician, I'm responsible for 
all my bandmates and they're nothing else than, than uh, musicians. So I have to guarantee them work. So I try to play as much as I can still, but um, I fill up my, my weekdays and my hours with teaching because, um, because I'm engaged with in, in this position and I really like it. It's, it's, it's very exciting also to, uh, to, to, to be teaching uh, my language, my culture to foreigners. That's, that's a really, really exciting uh, experience. And I'm constantly learning also to become a better, a better one, a better teacher a better person as a teacher so it's it's very very uh for me for me I, i i wouldn't give up uh none of the two now it's it's uh I, it's it's part of my balance well good thing you have that balance i mean what an amazing thing to have i guess i grew up this way since uh since i had that deal with my mother that i could <laughs> you know, play my harmonica if I was good at school. <laughs> so I just grew up with this uh, uh, one hand for the one hand for the writing, one hand for the harmonica. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of like that. And there's something very, very sp sp uh, unique that I have about the stage. There's, you know, when you play um, with the audience, you uh, it's uh, it's it's incredible. The moments we share among us musicians with the crowd there's something spiritual there that's that's very 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 strong so i can't give up the music and um and 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 meeting up all these students trying to understand all their needs um trying to try to answer and stimulate each and every one of them with their specificities man that's it that's incredibly challenging so so yeah it's um It's uh, yeah, it's it's very important both both um, activities. So when when you decided to not play, and you were concerned about maybe that affecting your career, did it or what? What did that do to your career? I have to be honest with you. I have been very lucky with my career, and um, every time I've because I've I've decided. I think also for me, going back and forth the past 25 years as a professional musician, I had some downs, some moments where you just want to give it all up. When I remember I lost my voice once in 2001, and I, and I really thought that as a band leader, lead singer of my band, if I couldn't sing, then there was no a career for me uh, at the end of uh, the, the road. So I had to give up and go for something else because I couldn't base my life on, on, on singing. If I couldn't sing, if, if my voice was not able to keep up with the rhythm and stuff that, you know, physically, if I, if I wasn't able to do it. So few times along the way, I, I felt like I, I had to give up. And every time that I felt this way, I went all the way in the process and, um, And um, every time I came back stronger to the music because I came back to it. So I came back with the will of continuing. But luckily, my employers, the different places, even places I've canceled, uh, I think they've, um, they've uh, forbidden me for this. They've, uh, they've accepted and, uh, and they've given me another chance. So 
it has never affected my career. In fact, did you ever figure out why you how you lost your voice? Was it because not using your voice properly, or was it a medical condition, or because that must be frightening to lose your voice? Man, when when it's the beginning of the tour and you you, because the feeling is awful. You feel like because people don't can't realize they don't see it that that you're wounded. You're basically you're you're. It's almost like your clothes would be ripped off. You know, it's your voice. Your voice is falling in pieces, yeah. and uh, but no one can see it from the outside. So people come and they you know they shake your hand. They want to speak and you can't. You open your mouth and nothing comes out of it. So. It is extremely scary, especially when when it's the the beginning of a tour and you're playing the day after. The day after is the worst because on the first day, on the day you lose your voice, you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna sleep over it and maybe tomorrow, um, you know, I'm gonna pray and, and it's gonna be back. But no, you wake up and it's and, no, it's not there. And and you and you get to the gig and you have you know two or three hours of a show to play with no voice oh man that's that's terrible and um that's that's that was really tough so and uh so was that i mean could you prevent that from happening in the future through lessons or is that something that was biological or physical or like how did you get over so i i went to uh after the tour i came back and i i i took some lessons um, with an orthophonist, you know what is an orthophonist? It's someone that helps you speak. Right. And um, this woman, she came to see me, uh, and um, or she had seen me actually uh, before, and she said, "You're very tensed when you play, and you don't need to tense your your arm or your shoulders when you sing, because this is not affecting your voice. It's actually affecting neg neg negatively your voice, but it's not going to help you sing better. So she um, she didn't give me singing lessons, but she showed me how to relax and how to be able to um, be more efficient vocally without um, involving so much my, my, my whole body in the process. And so that was a, that was a, a starting point for me. I, I went on... Uh, I, I worked that direction and it, it from there on I started understanding better how it worked and then I spoke to teachers um, vocalists I, I tried to take some lessons but I wasn't convinced with the teachers that I had so I, I, I was not convinced at all but I spoke with a couple of them and we shared experiences and it helped me realize that the voice is something extremely fragile, which I never thought it was. And, um, and it's also intimately connected to your emotions. And if you're stressed, the voice is going to react to it. If you're, if you're, of course, if you haven't slept, if you're, of course, if your health is, you know, poor, um, then your voice is going to be affected. So, by taking all these little details in in uh, in account, I am today able to uh, to enjoy my voice with I think uh, more maturity, and um, it has never happened as it happened that day um, again. So, well, um, it, but you know, it's, yeah. it's an amazing thing because really, your voice or your body is your instrument. Right, like it's not just just your throat or your mouth or whatever, but it's it's how you eat and how you sleep and how you take care of yourself that has a major impact on how you would sing. I would imagine. 
It is. And so, but, you know, I, I always thought all these blues guys, you know, they didn't have any healthy <laughs> life. So, you know, it doesn't matter, whatever. Not that I drunk or I smoke or, but I, I didn't care. I, I didn't care about nothing. I remember the day I lost my voice. I was acting totally stupid, going crazy, trying to sing like Howling Wolf and boom. So it also went back to me like I'm not Howling Wolf. And it's it's ridiculous for me to try to sing like this because this is where it leads me into, right into the wall. So I need to accept that I'm white, I'm much younger than him, and I don't have the same life, and I don't have the same uh, cells. So I have to also take my voice as it is for what it can give me and tolerate what it's not going to give me. And I and I and I, I need to make peace with me. And um, and from that point on, also, I accepted more the voice that I have and um, and I've learned to play with it, understanding its limits and but then developing its qualities in order to be able to do more with it. Well, what an interesting career you've had in, in, in both pursuing your teaching and also pursuing the blues. And for somebody who didn't have a plan, you know, I, I believe you went to the IBC twice, correct? Yeah, three times. Oh, the first times. time I, I, I got nowhere, but the other two times um, took me to the finals. And the very last time I ended up third with my name on the on the board and the check and stuff <laughs> <laughs> so what does it mean to you to be and i presume you would consider yourself a french blues man is that correct or are you, do you even think that way um that's a good question i remember we have a french blues man here in paris who used to play a lot with luther allison and he uh the guy was a is quite famous in the country he had a radio show and one day i heard him saying the story that Luther told him, if, you know, why don't you sing in your, in your, in your own language? And uh, he said, no, but because blues, you know, blues is American and I want to sing. And he said, but you would never be more yourself and, and honest to yourself than if you sang in your own language. And so he went on and he's, he did his career singing in French from that point on. And um, I'm not at that point where I consider myself a French bluesman addressing to a French crowd in French. I, I've, re I've recorded some French songs because I always wanted to put that print on it. But um, on my recordings, like if people hear me outside somewhere else, the music's been recorded, for example, in the States. Uh, I remember recorded an album with David Maxwell mm -hmm. and Kid Bangham and... Uh, Mudcat Ward, the whole team that backed up uh, the, 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 the record Super Harp with uh, James Cotton and Billy Branch and, you know, all those records on, on Till Arc that came mm -hmm. out, Super Harp. So I had this team of musicians playing behind me. And, um, and, uh, so, and this was recorded in Boston. So on that record, I had them backing me up on a French song because I thought – this is this is where I can really be myself. I'm playing with all these musicians. I try to pretend. I try to I try to to blend my identity, my French background, and 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 sound American as much as as I can. But then, then you know, let's be honest and and let's also say who I am. And so I recorded that song w with these guys, and uh, and so 
for me, it's the the line is not clearly drawn. Where how do I look at myself or how do I consider myself? I I want to be completely in the United States. I want to be completely credible. I want to be completely. Um, you know, does credible mean something for mm-hmm. you? You know what sure. I mean. I I want to have a hundred percent credibility when I play my harmonica and when I sing. Also, it's harder to have credibility when you sing because you have to have the right accent, but not only the accent, you have to f- carry the right meaning for each and every word, even if it has a double or triple meaning, you have to carry it on. And it's not just performing the one song, but it's it's everything you'll you'll be saying in between the songs. How do you how do you present yourself to your to your audience? Uh, are you the hoochie coochie man or what are you? You know, mm-hmm. so it has to be. I want to be a hundred percent, you know, credible uh, for 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 the people in the United States. In France, I want to be the French one who has gone there, who's seen the light, and who's bringing it back to his to its people. <laughs> so in a way, it's it's quite ambitious, maybe a. Uh, quite arrogant from from my from my from me to to want to be all that but this is what i what i want to be so the the i I don't i don't hide my french uh i mean my french identity in the united states uh at all i can't i mean it it comes out it shows even in my clothes so i don't i don't hide it but but i want people to really believe that they see someone genuine when they see me and they don't see someone clowning a blues man. Right. Well, I mean, it's obvious you describing yourself as a fan before anything else kind of proves that fact. Right. I mean, you have such respect for the music and just hearing you talk about it, you know, I mean, obviously the, the passion that you have for the blues is, is, is evident just in the way you, you talk about it. So thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. it was, you know, I just reached out. I, I've always wanted to talk to you. And um, I don't know what year it was when we when I first exchanged emails with you. But I really appreciate this chance and, and for you to be so open about your life. Well, thank you, Marco. Thank you for your invitation. And thank you for what you do because you're collecting testimonies. I'm, 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 I'm one among uh, the 230-something you've done, I think, 39 so far. But, um, but it's amazing. And, and I know it takes a lot of time. And it's a time that is not bringing home money, <laughs> I think. So, it's, it's totally a selfish endeavor. Um, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have the chance to sit down and talk to you. I think people like you also should get their moment where someone will um, will uh, will interview them because you have a lot to say. I was enjoying uh, the the full documentary on uh, Chris. I, I have a hard time pronouncing his name. Strasswitz from uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Aruli Records. And man, what a life! But thanks to him, we have so many recordings. But all of a sudden. He becomes the star of the documentary, and he's amazing. Oh, yeah, so for sure. I mean, I mean, and he deserves it. I mean, the things that he's done is pretty amazing. So it's inc- it's incredible. So I can't wait to hear your uh, interview <laughs> when someone will want to do it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again for doing this. My pleasure. Mm-hmm.